It's good to be with you guys this morning. I love a good elbow bump. I think that's fun. I think we need to keep doing that even after this whole crazy coronavirus thing is finished. Um, it reminds me of being in Little League. We used to do that. Uh, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn or scroll to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, as you guys know, if you've been here uh, any time over the past two years, we are in a series called Kingdom Family, and we've been studying through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and we've been examining each verse very, 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 very carefully. But that's been really good. Um, a lot of, a lot of uh, sermon series kind of just go through in these big chunks of scripture, and it's been so good for us to just sit in these truths about who God is revealed to us in the book of Ephesians. Um, but this is actually the last Sunday we're going to be in our series for a little bit. Uh, next week, we're actually going to start a series leading up to Easter. Somebody, please be excited about Easter. Jesus is risen. Some of you are like, yes, we finally get a break from our Kingdom Family series. But mostly, Jesus is risen. Uh, the title of our message this morning is Wasted. Uh, and typically in the series, we've been uh, teaching from the New Living Translation, but this morning I'm actually going to be teaching from the New American Standard Bible. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to start this morning in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making, most, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's our verse. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Church, this is God's word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, this morning in particular, around this subject of alcohol and wine, we need Holy Spirit wisdom. We need the wisdom of God to come and fall into this place, Lord, because alcohol is a very sensitive issue in the church. And Lord, I just want to ask this morning, uh, just in particular, God, that you would speak uh, through me, Lord, the things that are not, uh, that are of me, but not of you. God, would those things fade away? God, and would you speak to us, Lord? We really desperately need to hear from you today, God. So I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart this morning would be uh, glorifying to you and edifying to your church, to this kingdom family here in Ventura. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so in 1972, a man by the name of Arthur Fletcher coined a phrase that would embed itself into the cultural consciousness of America. Arthur Fletcher was appointed to be the executive director of what's called the UNCF. And what the UNCF does is they provide scholarships for African-American students to be able to attend college. And, and when he was appointed, in order to drum up support and funding for the UNCF, uh, he partnered with a, a local ad agency called Young and Rubicam, and they worked together to develop a new slogan for the UNCF that would be on print ads and TV commercials across the country. And the slogan that they came up with was this, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. 
I'm sure many of you have probably heard that phrase before. That's where it, it comes from. And uh, this, this phrase has actually been regarded as one of the most effective advertising slogans in all of history. It's up there with like Nike's Just Do It slogan. Uh, and this, for the UNCF, this, this slogan was something that would propel them and fuel them for decades. It was a very valuable resource for them as they uh, worked to give these scholarships to African-American students. Now, so far in our Kingdom Family series, we have learned that the first section of Ephesians, verses 1 through 20, is all about the resources of the kingdom. It's about the resources of the kingdom, and it's about how we are to use those resources for the kingdom, both in the church and on the earth. Just to recap a little bit, verse 2 is all about how we use the resource of love. Billy preached on that. He said that we have been given an extravagant, lavish, and otherworldly kind of love to the sacrifice of Jesus. And then Paul exhorts the church to live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Then in verse 3, we looked at how we spend our affections. The resource of our affection is not to be used in service to idols, but rather to give thanks and to worship God. And then in verse 4, we talked about the resource of our words, right? Dom said this. He said, uh, you get 7,000 words a day. The average person speaks 7,000 words a day. How are, gonna, how are you going to use the words that you have been given for the kingdom? And then in verses 8 through 14, Billy uh, taught us about the resource of light, and he reminded us that for those of us who are in Christ, Christ also dwells in us, and his light shines both in us and through us. The call of the Christian life is to awake, arise, and radiate, to shine the light into the darkness. Light is a resource that the Christian is to use in order to expose the things in the dark. And then last week in verse 15 through 17, we looked at the resource of our time. We are to redeem, to buy back the time because the days are evil. And our time is like currency. Dom said it this way. He said, your days are like dollars. How are you going to invest them for the kingdom? And in many ways, Ephesians chapter 5 is really all about the raw materials of an effective Christian life. And this morning, we are going to look at another resource of the Christian. And I just want to give uh, briefly a quick disclaimer about this passage. This passage and the teaching today is not going to be primarily about alcohol. I know there's some of you probably who are expecting or maybe you wanted like a five-point in-depth didactic sermon on whether or not the Christian should drink alcohol. And if that's you, I'm sorry, you're going to be sadly disappointed by this sermon. However, uh, if that's something that you do want, if that's something that you feel like you'd like to, to, to get, uh, Chris Lazo preached a sermon called Alcohol and the Christian a few years ago. Um, and it is a really, really good, uh, comprehensive, biblical treatment of <clears throat> alcohol as it relates to the life of the Christian. You can get that at realitycarpenteria.com. But we do need to talk about the issue of alcohol because Paul addresses it here in our verse. And it, it's an important issue. The issue of alcohol is really sensitive in the church. And sadly, it's one of the most divisive. People literally leave churches because of prejudices toward and against alcohol or for alcohol even. 
The opposite of a kingdom family is a kingdom divided. And so often, so often the enemy loves to sow division in the church into issues that Christians were never meant to divide over. And alcohol is certainly one of those issues, right? So this morning, we need to acknowledge together, we need to acknowledge the sensitivity uh, of the issue of alcohol. And more importantly, we need to understand alcohol in light of the word of God. So before I go any further, I just want to make a couple of quick points about the issue of alcohol as it pertains to scripture. And the first point that I want to make is that the Bible is clear that alcohol in and of itself is not inherently sinful or evil. A glass of wine sitting on a table by itself is not just going to magically start manifesting demons, okay? Alcohol is not really good or bad. It's just a substance, right? But often in the Bible, God gives wine as a sign of blessing. Look at what Psalm 104 has to say. It says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. If alcohol was inherently sinful or evil, then Jesus would not have inaugurated his public ministry by creating wine out of water, right? You guys remember that story in John chapter 2? Jesus and his crew uh, are at this wedding feast in Cana, and the wine runs out. And they're like, what are we going to do? And Jesus is like, okay, fine, I will, I will, I'll do something about it. <clears throat> he takes the water and he turns it into wine. He makes wine for this party. If wine was sinful by itself, Jesus would not and could not have made it because he is the perfect son of God, right? Now, I want to take it a step further and say that the Bible is also clear that the act of consuming alcohol is not inherently sinful or evil. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. In the same way that Jesus inaugurates his ministry with wine, Jesus also inaugurates his new covenant with wine. In the presence of his closest friends, the disciples, Jesus breaks bread and he pours out wine. And he implores them. He says, when you eat this bread and when you drink this wine, remember me. And here's what that means. The literal way that the Christian is supposed to commemorate, to celebrate the death and life of Jesus is with bread and wine. Scripture actually reveals in many ways that wine or alcohol is actually more sacred than it is sinful. And that might come as a shock to some of you. Maybe you've been raised your whole life and you're like, drinking is a sin, drinking is a sin, drinking is a sin, alcohol is a sin. But that is not the picture that the Bible paints of alcohol. A alcohol actually is sacred. But the truth is that anything that is sacred can easily become sinful when it's abused. And perhaps no more so than alcohol. The Bible speaks just as much about the abuse of alcohol as it does the blessing of alcohol. 
For every story in the Bible about the blessing of wine, there is a warning about the brokenness that wine brings about when it is abused. And unfortunately, there are many of us in this room today who have a similar story about how the abuse of alcohol has destroyed our own life or the life of someone that we love. And the Bible recognizes that. That's real. Now, Paul calls this abuse of alcohol drunkenness or getting drunk. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And one of the key rhetorical devices that Paul's been using throughout his letter to the Ephesians is the device of contrast or comparison. This section of Ephesians is really all about effective kingdom living. And in order to show the church in Ephesus what an effective kingdom life looks like, Paul is juxtaposing life in the world with life in the kingdom. Let me give you a few examples of this. In verse 4, Paul says, Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. To paraphrase that, Paul is saying, you used to use words foolishly. When you were in the world, you used words with foolishness, but now as a member of God's family, be intentional about using your words to give thanks to God. Paul does the same thing in verse 11. He says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. He's saying, don't participate in the things of darkness like you used to. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you now have light that is burning inside of you. Use it to expose the things in the dark. Paul uses contrast in verse 15. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, once you made decisions without wisdom, but God has now given you heavenly wisdom to guide the decisions of your life. Do you see how Paul is using this idea of contrast to show an effective kingdom life? And that's exactly what he's doing in verse 18. Let's put it on the screen here. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's juxtaposing the experience of being drunk and being filled. Being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And he's not randomly choosing drunkenness here. He's not randomly, arbitrarily choosing drunkenness to contrast life in the world and life in the spirit. He's not saying don't steal, but be filled with the spirit. He's not saying don't cheat on your spouse, but be filled with the spirit. He's not saying don't kill people, instead be filled with the spirit. That's not what he's saying. Because none of those things accurately convey the point that Paul is trying to make. He's saying don't get drunk, but be filled with the spirit. And he's saying it for a very specific reason and purpose. Because being drunk and being filled with the Spirit are both things that directly impact the mind. Both experiences have a direct and deep impact on the human psyche, which exists in our mind. Both being drunk and being filled with the Spirit have the power to dramatically alter the kind of person that we are. And if you grew up with an alcoholic parent or a, an alcoholic relative, you know that all too well. Drunkenness can make a kind person cruel. 
Drunkenness can make an honest person lie. Drunkenness can make a clean person vulgar, right? The list goes on and on. This is the kind of stranglehold that alcohol has on the mind and the personality. But how exactly does drunkenness alter the mind? Well, physiologically speaking, alcohol, what it does is it suppresses, uh, it suppresses your prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is it's the part of your brain that regulates what's known as executive function. Executive function encompasses things like decision-making, uh, self and social awareness, and the expression of our personality. Those are all things that happen in the prefrontal cortex. But also, your prefrontal cortex in your brain is where you determine between good and bad. It's where you determine better or best. And it's also the place where you weigh the future consequences of your current decisions. That's what happens in your prefrontal cortex. And to put a kind of a spiritual lens on that, the prefrontal cortex is the physical place in your brain where you apply wisdom to your life. And when abused, what alcohol does is it impairs the ability of your prefrontal cortex to regulate executive function. This is exactly why a drunk person thinks that they can jump off of a second-story balcony onto a four-foot trampoline. (laughs) They have no ability to process the reality of the consequences that might happen if they do that. Have you ever heard of alcohol uh, referred to as liquid courage? Yeah, liquid courage. This is the reason why it's referred to as that, except alcohol doesn't actually make you courageous at all. It just makes you dumb. It makes you dumb enough to do things that you would never do under normal circumstances. This is why alcohol leads to so many other compromising decisions. This is why someone who is buzzed thinks that they can get behind the wheel of a car. I just want to pause for a second and recognize that there are probably, I'm almost certain that there are people in this room today who have lost someone that they love friend or a family member because someone else decided that they could get behind the wheel of the car when they shouldn't. People who are drunk actually think that they can do anything because they've lost their ability to rationally apply conventional and practical wisdom to their situation. Now, I can kind of tell right now there's a big pink or maybe a, a green elephant in the room. What about marijuana? Right? <laughs> what about marijuana? Because the Bible, the marijuana doesn't exist in the Bible, so there's nothing specifically said about marijuana. We do have reference to alcohol because it was around in the Bible. But what about marijuana? How does weed factor into all of this? Is it okay? Is it not okay? Well, to that I would say that uh, science shows us that weed actually suppresses your prefrontal cortex in the same exact way that alcohol does, except for the fact that marijuana can actually permanently damage your ability of your prefrontal cortex to regulate executive function. It has lasting implications. But the point, the point that Paul is making, and the point of this whole issue of alcohol is that getting drunk or high so deeply deadens and suppresses our ability to process reality that we cease to function or look anything like our normal selves. 
Very literally, when we give ourselves to intoxication, we lose our minds, and in doing so, we lose ourselves. This is one of the reasons why people get drunk in the first place. Often people think that alcohol or weed will free them to become someone else, but what happens is it really just presses who they truly are. In 1990, Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who was a pioneer in the field of neurotheology, uh, he began to study the physiological impact of spiritual practices on the human brain. And what he did was he measured the neurological activity of people who regularly practice things like prayer and meditation and worship, the things, uh, the practices of somebody who is filled with the spirit, as Paul would say. And he discovered something very interesting. He discovered that when people engaged in these kind of spiritual practices, prayer, worship, meditation, there was a dramatic increase in the neurological activity of a specific part of the brain. Can you guess where? Prefrontal cortex. Can't make this stuff up, right? Like, this is why Paul is contrasting being drunk with wine and being filled with the spirit. The pursuit of drunkenness diminishes our capacity for wisdom, but the pursuit of the things of the spirit actually scientifically, physiologically increases our capacity for wisdom. Where drunkenness suppresses the ability of our brains to process the reality of life, the spirit awakens our ability to see the reality of the kingdom. And this right here is what I believe to be the heartbeat of what Paul is trying to communicate in our passage. He's not just saying, don't get drunk. If that's all we get out of this passage, then we've totally missed it. This whole passage is pointing to something much deeper. Paul is calling the church to be awakened to what King Jesus is doing, how he's moving, both in the family of God and in the world. And he's calling the Christian specifically to be spiritually sober-minded about the things of the kingdom. To borrow a, uh, a phrase that millennials like to use, he's calling us to be woke <laughs> to what God is doing in the world. He's calling us to be awakened. And we cannot be awakened to what is happening in the kingdom if we are put to sleep by the things outside of it. In our passage... Paul summarizes this idea by using the word dissipation. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. This is a clue for us in this passage. What exactly is dissipation? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines dissipation as the squandering of money, energy, or resources. To summarize that, dissipation is synonymous with wastefulness a wasting of resources for the pursuit of something lesser. The human brain is by far the most complex organ in existence. By far. The blood vessels in your brain, if you stretch them out end to end, would cover 100,000 miles. That's uh, four times around the earth. There's over 100 billion neurons present in your brain right now. If those neurons were dollars, you would be richer than two-thirds of the countries in the world. Those neurons will fire at 170 miles an hour when they're engaged. 
which is uh, the average speed of a bullet train. And God, in his sovereignty, in his love, wove all of that together. King David captures this, this creativity of God in Psalm 139. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. In all of human history, since the beginning of time itself, there has never been a mind quite like yours. There has never been anyone who thinks exactly the way you think or processes things in the exact same way that you process them. God created your mind to be perfectly unique. When he formed you in your mother's womb, he fashioned your mind to be able to think creatively and analytically. He gave you the ability to solve problems that no one else can solve. He gave you the ability to see things that no one else can see. God gave you a left brain and a right brain and he smacked them together inside of your head and he says, use your mind for my kingdom. Use your mind to give me glory. Christian, your mind is a resource and it was meant to be put to the plow for the sake of the glory of God on earth. Your mind was meant to create beautiful works of art that declare his goodness to all who see it. Your mind was meant to provide godly counsel and wisdom for those who have lost, your, lost their way. Your mind was meant to dream up ways to fight injustice, end poverty, preach the gospel, reach the nations, worship the king, and usher in his kingdom here on earth. That's what your mind was meant for. That's what your mind was meant for. And Paul is saying in our verse today, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Your mind. There's a reason getting drunk is often referred to as getting wasted. Because that's exactly what it is. It's a waste. A mind given over to the pursuit of drunkenness and intoxication is a mind wasted. And Paul is almost begging us today, don't waste the resource of your mind by suppressing it with things like alcohol. There is too much at stake in the kingdom. The spiritual implications are far too great to waste your mind on lesser things. Now maybe you've been listening to this sermon so far and you're like, I don't even have a problem with alcohol. Like I don't even like the taste of alcohol. But all of us, everyone in this room has a tendency to turn to something in life to take the edge off. I don't know what that thing is for you, but, but you know what that thing is. It's that thing that at the end of a long day, when you get home from a long day, you're like, oh, I just need blank. <clears throat> That's the thing that is consuming our minds. And the truth is that it is entirely possible, friends, to get drunk on things that aren't called alcohol. We can easily let our minds become wasted on seemingly innocuous things that have no purpose for the kingdom of God. And if we are called to be kingdom kids, living in a kingdom family for the sake of the kingdom here on earth, 
can't waste it. We can't waste it. Why? Because if a vessel has become drunk, that means that it has become empty. If I drink this, if this water bottle becomes drunk, there's nothing left in it. And this is the great irony of alcohol. When you surrender your mind to things like alcohol, to things like substances, or even just to mindless pursuits like Netflix or social media or technology, whatever it is in your life that you drink will end up drinking you. The lesser things that you consume will always end up consuming you and inevitably they will leave you empty with nothing left to pour out for the kingdom of God. Arthur Fletcher, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, uh, he was well acquainted with this idea. Several years before he coined the phrase, the mind is a terrible thing to waste, his wife Mary was uh, incorrectly diagnosed with a mental disorder. She was actually just unhappy in her life, but she went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist uh, diagnosed her with a mental disorder, and she was wrongfully prescribed very heavy psychotic drugs. And one by one, these drugs began to consume her mind until eventually nothing was left. And sadly, one day she decided to take her life by jumping off of a bridge. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. When Arthur Fletcher penned those words, he knew full well what it meant for a mind to be wasted. There are many of us in this room today who have allowed our minds to be consumed and wasted by the substances of this life, both literal and figurative. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you find yourself in that place. Maybe today you've grown tired of being wasted by alcohol or Netflix or social media or whatever it is that you've given your mind to. And if that's you today, the Apostle Paul has a good and glorious instruction for you. And this is the contrast. This is the reason why Paul is using this idea of drunkenness. If that's you today, Paul would say, be filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God doesn't drink you up. He fills you up. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste your mind. The Holy Spirit regenerates your mind. The Holy Spirit doesn't hold your mind captive. The Holy Spirit sets your mind free. The Holy Spirit doesn't rob your mind of self-control. The Holy Spirit bears in your mind the fruit of self-control. The Holy Spirit doesn't blur your mind to the reality of this world, but sharpens your mind to the reality of the sovereignty, the supremacy, the authority, the grace, the love, and the mercy of the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the Savior who is working in us. Paul would exhort the church in Rome in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
The Spirit renews our minds to the redemptive work that Jesus is already doing inside of us. He's redeeming the way that we love. He's redeeming the way that we speak. He's redeeming our affections. Jesus is redeeming our time, and he's redeeming our minds as well. Why is he doing that? Why does the Spirit reveal the work of Jesus in us? He does it so that the kingdom of God might be revealed through us. And if that's true, if that's true this morning, then we need more than a one-time dose of the Holy Spirit. When Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, the word that he's using for filled invokes a, a certain kind of continuousness. Verse 18 reads something like this. Don't get drunk with wine, but continually be being filled with the Spirit. The Bible says that when a person receives Jesus for the first time, the Holy Spirit radically invades their soul. This is why people who get saved are just like tripping out, right? You ever meet a person that like just got saved and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, Jesus! The reason they're like that is because the Holy Spirit has come into them and is now revealing the work of Jesus to them. That's one of the most beautiful parts of salvation, right? But without the proper attention, the effects of that initial filling can quickly wane. There's some irony to this verse because although they have opposite effects, the Holy Spirit is actually quite similar to a glass of wine or a beer or a margarita. If you fill yourself with a spirit, sorry, you fill yourself with a spirit in the same exact way that you would get drunk. That sounds crazy, but think about it for a second. If you want to experience more of the effect of alcohol, what do you do? You drink more. If you want to experience more of the effect of the Holy Spirit, what do you do? You drink more of him. You immerse yourself in him. You drink and you drink and you drink until you become full of God. How do you drink of the Spirit? Jesus said to ask. He said in Luke 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if we ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When you surrender your mind and your life to the Spirit, when you allow your mind to be regenerated, renewed, transformed, and led by the Spirit of the living God that is at work in you, you will be filled up to overflowing. Your life will become so full of passion and purpose that the kingdom of God will spill and ooze out of your life into your home, into your neighborhood, into your job, into your community. When you surrender your mind to him, the spirit will begin to realign your thoughts, your conscience, your desires, your decisions with the heart of the Father and the person of Jesus, all that you might now live a life for the glory of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, the mind is a terrible thing to waste. And your mind was meant for the kingdom. Don't waste it upon that 
which suppresses the things of this life, but be awakened to the one who gives life and life abundant. Amen? Jesus, we acknowledge right now that you are the one who gives life and life abundant. You are the only one, Jesus, who is capable of satisfying. There is nothing in this world that we could turn to that could ultimately satisfy the longing of our souls. So God, I ask that today, by your grace, that you would allow us to drink freely of the Holy Spirit. That you would allow us to surrender our minds to the work of the Holy Spirit, which is revealing Jesus in us. Help us, Lord, to process these things. God, would you draw our hearts to a place of repentance for the ways that we have turned to lesser things to satisfy something that only you can satisfy. I believe that today God is pouring something out, but it's not alcohol. God is pouring out his spirit. And he says, he says to you today, come and drink of me. Be filled with my love. Be filled with my holiness. Be filled with my glory. Be filled with my presence. Second set of worship right now is a time and a space to do that. The carpets are up front. If you need to just take a posture of surrender, if you need to allow your physical body to lead your mind into a place of surrender, the carpets are up front. If you're struggling to find that drink of the Holy Spirit, there's some people to the left and the right on the prayer team who would love nothing more than to lead you to that fountain. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that uh, the way that the Christian celebrates the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is at the front of the stage in the form of communion. But before we, we enter into worship, I want to address something that's, that's really important this morning. I believe that there are some of you in this room today who really are struggling with addiction to alcohol or other substances. And it might not be a full-blown addiction. It might not have completely consumed your life, but it's starting to. Alcohol, drugs porn, it's starting to consume your life. And I, I believe that I believe that I believe that God wants to heal addictions today. I believe it. I believe that God wants to regenerate minds today. I believe that God actually physiologically, neurologically wants to rewire people's brains, to change those connections to the way that he intended. If that's you today, if your mind is becoming wrapped up in addiction, please, please come forward today. I know some people on this prayer team that have fought the battle with addiction and by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they have emerged victorious. 
And they would love nothing more today than to walk you through it, to pray for you, to lead you to some next steps. And I also want to tell you this, the enemy wants to keep you in shame. The enemy wants to keep you in isolation. That's his goal. He wants to keep you isolated and cut off. And he lies to you and he says, it is shameful to come forward. It is shameful to put yourself out there. What what are people going to think? And I'm here to tell you today, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie from Satan. The best thing that you could do, the most life-giving thing you could do today is to come forward and get help. Please don't hesitate. No matter what situation you find yourself in today, church, let us not leave this room today without first drinking deeply and freely of the Holy Spirit. Amen.